Welcome to CHQ&A, the podcast of Chautauqua Institution, where we continue conversations that begin on stages and porches across the institution grounds for even deeper insight into the work and thought processes of those who shape the Chautauqua experience. I'm Jordan Steves, recording in the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the Chautauqua grounds. Our guest on this episode is Dan Egan, author of the acclaimed book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, in which he traces an ecological catastrophe happening right before our eyes, blending the epic story of the Great Lakes with an examination of the perils they face and the ways we can restore and preserve them for generations to come. The book has garnered comparisons to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. One reviewer has said that Dan Egan has done more than any journalist in America to chronicle the decline of this once great ecosystem. For his day job, Dan is a reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, where he has twice been a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. And he's a senior water policy fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences. He joined Emily Morris on stage at the Chautauqua Amphitheater on June 26th during the first week of the 2019 Summer Assembly season themed Moments That Changed the World. You're about to listen to their live conversation and the audience Q&A afterwards. How you doing? Good. This is the most people I've ever sat in front of in my life. <laughs> Welcome to our living room. Thank you. You've said that you are the only journalist in the United States whose beat is the Great Lakes, and now you're the author of an acclaimed book. How did this project come about? Um, not overnight. I, um, I, I started my newspaper reporting career in Idaho back in 1991, and I, I'm a native of Green Bay, Wisconsin. I did my undergraduate work at the University of Michigan, and then I headed out west. And I, I did, <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> um, I, I didn't have a lot of formal training in journalism. I just kind of got thrown into it. And as it happened, I was thrown into it in a place that had a lot of ecological issues that were really national issues at the time. I was in central Idaho. So I was covering wolf reintroduction, salmon restoration, grizzly bear recovery. These things that just kind of, um, I wasn't trained to do, but I was immediately drawn to it. Not just the biology of it, but the tension between human wants and needs and, and you know, these critters, mm -hmm. and man and nature, humans and nature. And then, it's kind of a long answer to this question. That's okay. But, and, it's uh, an interesting story. So, so that was 1991, and I, I spent uh, the next 10 years out in Idaho and uh, Utah covering a lot of natural resource issues. And then in 2002, I moved back with my wife, and then we had a, a one-year-old child to Wisconsin, and I took a job at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And it was, the job was called uh, general assignment, uh, super general assignment feature writer. So you basically just did long-form pieces on anything that, that I could find or anything that you know an editor would assign me. And for some reason, I was just drawn to the lakes. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I had been out west for a, a decade and literally in the desert. And then you come back and you see mm -hmm. a body of water the size of, well, a body of what you wouldn't see at Chautauqua Lake mm -hmm. out there, let alone Lake Michigan. And so I was just kind of sucked into doing stories, whether it was about the ecological history of the lakes or the economy or just features of people who, you know, live on the lakes and have lived on the lakes for generations. And after about a year, I went to lunch with the uh, managing editor at the paper, and he suggested that I, I turn this into a beat. And um, I said, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll do that. And what, what followed was another 10 years of Great Lakes reporting. So that's, that's where I got most of the material for this book. A lot of people say, how long did it take you to write the book? And the honest answer is, you know, more than 10 years because <laughs> I got a running start with the newspaper work. And I can explain how I made the jump. Yeah, go ahead. So in 2011 and 2012, that academic year, I went out to uh, New York to do a, a master's slash fellowship program at Columbia University. And this, by now I had three, four kids. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a heavy lift, uh, moving, to, moving to Riverdale for a year. And I, my goal at the time was just to, to take a break from the daily newspaper grind and to uh, show my kids a little bit more of the world than suburban Milwaukee. And 
I thought it would be a time to recharge and it was a time to be drained. It was a very intense program. And part of the program was a, a book writing seminar and part of that seminar was uh, putting together a book proposal. And like I mentioned, this running start, I had that when I, when I walked into the classroom because I had all these projects that I, had din- that I had done for the newspaper. And when I looked at them, they stacked up like chapters. And at this point, I, didn't, I wasn't excited about the idea that I'm in a book writing seminar and I'm writing a book proposal and maybe someday this will become a book. I was just trying to get, I was trying to pass the class and get home. <laughs> I, I, was, I didn't have time to write a book. I had a full-time job, and I, I was still writing for the newspaper while I was out there. I had a family. I wanted to keep both of them. I didn't want to add another big, a big load. And as it happened, uh, this, and this was really interesting because I got numb to all this material that I'd been mm. reporting because I got so close to it, and I was writing for Milwaukeeans and, and Wisconsinites. Um, and I had an assumption that a lot of people understood some of the basic history of the Great Lakes. And it was only being in New York and being, it was literally on this classroom on Broadway and sitting around a table with 16 other students and a couple of faculty members, only a couple of whom were from the Great Lakes region, that I started talking about some of these stories and they were wrapped. And I, that was encouraging to me. Mm. And, and so when I put this proposal together, it got tweaked a bit by the uh, professor and then tweaked heavily when it made its way to an agent who happened to be the agent for this professor, although they didn't pass it between each other. That's, if, you, if you want to go to New York, or if you want to write a book, it doesn't hurt to go to New York because yeah. it's such a small community. Right. Anyway, so uh, it... It, it, it was really impressed upon me that I was writing too regionally, too locally, and that this is a national story. And I didn't really believe them, but I do now, because here I am outside the Great Lakes Basin. Yeah, that's and right. It's obviously had some resonance. That's right. So, thank you. So if you brought your daily with you, there's a, a, a great resource that you may want to refer to as we talk about the next phase of this conversation. But... Um, so we're here talking about the moments that changed the world, and I know that we need to read the book, but can you just give us a, a summary of the essential moments that you think changed the Great Lakes and therefore the sure. world? Sure. I was told to talk slowly, but I don't know if I can give you an adequate summary by talking slowly. So just enough. like the, no. the I, top three. No, what... what What's really, the story starts, you know, with the idea that the five Great Lakes, vast as they are, they span 94,000 square miles of, of surface area, which is about the size of the United Kingdom. And, and I think a disservice is that they're called lakes. They, I don't know what the word is. Freshwater seas is what the French called them. But they're more than lakes. But despite the size they were as isolated from the rest of the aquatic world as, uh, you know, a pond in Wisconsin's North Woods mm-hmm. or up in the Adirondacks. And, and that's because nothing could swim up from the Atlantic. First of all, you had the St. Lawrence River, which in its natural state was a heck of a torrent. It was, there was no way stuff was going to migrate up from Montreal, say. I mean, so if you sail in from the East Coast, it's, it's ocean flat, until you get to Montreal, I think there's an elevation gain. It's about 1,000 miles, and the, the, there's an elevation, elevation gain of about 18 feet. But once you hit Montreal and Lachine Rapids specifically, you got a torrent, and nothing could swim, nothing could paddle up it uh, for thousands of years. And even if something could, now you're in Lake Ontario. If you could make it across Lake Ontario, you're going to hit a wall, and that wall is Niagara Falls. So that's how these lakes and their, their assemblage of fish were isolated on the uh, East Coast. It, in the book, I refer to it as the front door. The back door was, they call it a subcontinental divide. I understand there's, there's I don't know what the term is here, but the ridge that separates Lake yeah, Erie yeah. Basin from, from the Mississippi River mm-hmm. Basin. Well, we have that ridge too, only in some places, it's imperceptible. It's just a hump in the landscape. But it was enough to keep stuff from swimming, migrating back and forth. The front door. That, this is when things changed, when we started building canals linking the eastern seaboard to the Great Lakes for obvious economic reasons. But we didn't just get the cargos coming in. 
that we were expecting, we've, we got species that we weren't ready for and never even pondered. And the same thing happened on the, back si on the western side of the lakes at Chicago with the construction of the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal, which was designed to flush Chicago's sewage away because Chicago was drinking its effluent all the way up until 1900, and Chicagoans were getting quite sick from mm. that. So it made sense to flush it away from their drinking water intakes in Lake Michigan and put it into the Mississippi River Basin. But that created a corridor, too, for all manner of species to come into the lakes. So you had this pristine, well-functioning, exquisitely balanced system that got shredded in a matter of decades. And the first thing that did a number on the lakes was the sea lamprey, which I like to say made its way into the lakes honestly because it swam in, it swam up through the Erie Canal. It might have come up through the Welling Canal. Both of these canals opened in the 1820s and both provided access to the lakes above Niagara Falls. And, and once the lampreys came in, it was, it was death to the old system. And uh, we've been reeling and wobbling ever since. Mm -hmm. And I can explain a little bit about that. Sure. Okay. So the lampreys, they, they're fish, but they look like a snake or an eel. And they're hundreds of millions of years old. They're just a very good design, very primitive, but they're good at what they do. And what they do is they suck the life out of big fish. And so when, when um, these canals opened, these lampreys slithered in and, and they just did a number on the lake trout in the Great Lakes. And the lake trout were like the wolf. They were the apex predator. They controlled the flow of energy in the system. And in a matter of decades, they knocked it out. And, and, and with no wolf in control, everything underneath it exploded. And unfortunately for the lakes, behind the lampreys came uh, alewives and ocean herring. And so we got to the point on Lake Michigan, and it was a similar story on Erie, and not to the same degree on Superior, because that's kind of a different beast. But 90% of the fish in, in uh, Lake Michigan, the fish biomass was, was alewife. And, and they were dying because they weren't natural-born freshwater species. They, they spent some of their life in freshwater, but much of it out in the ocean. And so their kidneys were constantly under stress, which made them vulnerable to all matter of uh, die-offs. And they were dying by the billions. And I don't know if, if I don't imagine um, you would have had alewives here, but Lake Erie did. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm sure people can remember people who were in Chicago or Milwaukee on the western side of the lakes, the beaches were unusable. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were rendered useless. Mm -hmm. And so we had to fix it. How did we fix it? <laughs> well, we developed a poison which should make everybody feel good called lampricide. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> it only kills lampreys, they say. And it actually does. I mentioned that these lampreys are, you know, they're ancient machines and that they've been left with a very crude liver which made them uniquely vulnerable. And, and biologists uh, spent a lot of time, years upon years, figuring out a chink in their armor. And it was really that they had this weak liver and that they spawned in relatively few streams. So we started dosing the streams with lampricide. We uh, knocked down the lampreys. It's a program that's still going on today. It costs about $25 million a year, mm -hmm. and it's been going on since the 1950s. So you're looking at something up into the billions of dollars that this has cost. And, and this is just for control one species, and not to eradicate it, to control it. Once we got those uh, uh, lampreys under control, Something had to be brought in to eat the alewives because the lake trout were, were pretty much cooked, except for up on Lake Superior, and the, the remnant populations hung on, and we could have brought back lake trout exclusively to the Great Lakes, but there was this idea that we could bring in something sexier, something more fun. So this is boggling to think. You've got this Atlantic herring that's wiggled its way into the Great Lakes, and we treated it by flying in Pacific coho and Chinook salmon. And at the time, we didn't know if, if, if the fish were going to survive because they're saltwater species. But they also, like the alewives and lampreys, have a freshwater component. So they thought, if there's enough food, maybe they, they'll stick around. And, and they did, and they're still here. And uh, it's been an amazing, amazing story. It created this huge recreational fishery. But it's kind of an artificial balance, and it's, again out of whack, and it's because mm -hmm. these, these canals, we keep getting invasions. Yeah. And the second round of invasions weren't uh, critters that swam in, they were um, 
all manner of organisms that hitched rides on uh, boats that sailed up, I mentioned the Welland Canal earlier, that was the first segment that created the Grand St. Lawrence Seaway, which opened in 1959. And the idea at the time was we were going to turn ports like Toledo and uh, Cleveland and uh, Milwaukee and Duluth into ports that would rival anything on the coasts. Because if you look at a globe, we're really far north, and it made a lot of sense. On a map, it made a lot of sense. And in you know, boardrooms, it made a lot of sense. But nobody was pondering what this could mean to, to open not just barges coming in, but big ocean-going freighters. And these freighters need ballast water, which helps helps them sail safely, but that water isn't dead weight, it's anything but. And so since the seaway opened in 1959, we've added another 60-some non-native species. And, and so the top of the food chain I was just talking about got knocked out, and we, we put it back together. But now the bottom of the food chain's been knocked out, and that's a bugaboo. That's really a harder harder problem to solve. And it's been knocked out by primarily these mussels. And, and I understand you have zebra mussels here and you yes, don't have do. quagga mussels. You don't want quagga mussels no. at all. They, um, they are remarkable. And the thing, they're only about the size of a fingernail. But you can't think of them as one organism. You've got to think of them as like maybe even cancer cells. It's just, it, it's part of a larger living organism. And by large, I mean the bottom of Lake Michigan is now 100% covered, almost 100% covered with these mussels clustering at densities up to 100,000 per square meter, which doesn't make sense when you think, how could 100,000 of them fit on a, on a square tile, three feet by three feet? They're not one-dimensional. They stack like coral. And each one of them can filter a liter of water a day. So they're literally sucking the life out of the, out of the lakes. And that's the bottom of the food chain, all the plankton they're taking. And as the bottom goes, so goes the top. So now we got wobbly salmon, and uh, it's a whole new era. And mm. so it's these doors that changed everything. The doors that we opened with the best of intentions, and they were good ideas for the time. But a good idea for this time is to close them. And they can be closed, and we can keep navigation coming into the lakes, and we can keep Chicago from having to drink its flushes. <laughs> we have technologies that we didn't have in 1900, and we're not fully using them. Interesting. Yeah. One of the reviewer, the New York Times book reviewer of your book said, uh, what is needed now are legislators, activists, citizens, and writers like you who have an appreciation for that murkiest, least attractive of qualities, which is complexity. Complex, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, and you, you talk a lot in your book about some communities that really have tried to wrestle, if, you know, pretty effectively with complexity. Yes, yes, and you know, this is this is why uh, this book is relevant to beyond the 40 million U.S. and Canadian residents inside the basin. It's because these doors, particularly the East Coast, the front door, is really a door to the continent. Once things get into the lakes, I mean, you would not have zebra mussels here mm -hmm. if you did not have boats sailing up the St. Lawrence Seaway that brought these mussels from the other side of the ocean. They can't swim, you know, they, they needed a ride. And so we open these doors, and we don't just suffer on the shores of the Great Lakes, we suffer across the country. Mm -hmm. So part of the research I did for this book involved going out west where they're in a ferocious battle to keep these zebra and quagga mussels, you can think of them as the same thing, really. They're, they're cousins. Mm -hmm. if, if tricenid mussels can have cousins, they, that's what they are. Very closely related. And, and so you have just this immense effort underway to, uh, to stop the next lake from getting infested. And I'm sure people on inland lakes have looked at askance at, at like fishing tournaments when these boats come from all over. What might they be bringing? Well, that's going on in a big way all the way from uh, Southern California up to the Pacific Northwest where there's checkpoints and people can be fined thousands of dollars for not having their boats properly inspected, which is great. But the thing is, is what you need to do is to keep that front door closed to begin with. Mm -hmm. When I talk about the seaway, it does carry really big ships, but, but every ship that comes into this, onto this continent um, has to go through this exquisitely tight pinch point. It's only 80 feet wide, which, you know, is a lot 
I don't know, maybe as, as wide as this stage, that's a door they all have to come through. It's called the St. Lambert Lock. And you open up that door, now you have people out in Lake Powell having to have their swim noodles power washed with hot water because they're carrying the, the baby mussels. And so out west, boats have been, boaters have been fined up to $5,000 for, for trying to sneak in to a lake that they're not authorized to be on. And when I was doing the reporting for this book, how we've tried to deal with this ballast water, there, there's more steps going on, which I won't get into right now, but traditionally, uh, it's, they've, in the last 10 years, they've had to flush their ballast tanks with salt water to expel or kill any freshwater hitchhiker. Now, if a boat doesn't do that, a freighter doesn't do that, we call them salties, uh, they, they have to seal their ballast tank and promise not to, to discharge it while they're in the lakes. If they do, they get fined. These boats can carry millions of gallons of water, and the fines that they were getting for violating this back when I was doing this reporting in 2014, I think it was on the order of like uh, 2000 or $3,000. Wow. And a jet ski... In, in Lake Powell was, uh, was fined like $4,500. And, and so this is the importance of, of managing this front door. And what we need to do is to require, and it's going on now, an installation of ballast treatment systems so we can kill these things before they threaten mm -hmm. Chautauqua or Powell or Mead or, the, or the, all of the Pacific Northwest you talk, you talk in the book about the Clean Water Act and that in some ways that it was as harmful as it was helpful. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, real quickly, they, um, they, they uh, exempted ballast water. They thought it was just um, dead weight. And so when the Clean Water Act came in 1972, thanks to, you know, people finally having enough, having had enough, and, you know, a big having had enough happened just west of here in Toledo, or in uh, Cleveland, with, with the Cuyahoga, of course, burning. And, and so the Clean Water Act did a remarkable job of throttling classic industrial pollutants, but it didn't really touch what I talk about in the book as these biological pollutants. It exempted ballast water, so it wasn't until a lawsuit that was launched in 2006 or so that uh, the government, the governments, Canada and the U.S., have slowly started to turn the screws on the shipping industry. But a lot would argue they're not turning them fast enough because they, they're still discovering, just in the last two or three years, they found two or three new species in Lake Erie. So, yeah, we have opportunities. We've got to learn from what, we, what we've done in the past and, and take advantage of it. And I, I just want to touch on this biological pollution just so people can understand that it's not just the a different named fish that's swimming in the lake. The mussels in particular, they've so fundamentally rewired the way energy flows through the lakes that they're kicking out poisons. In, in Lake Michigan, for example, there's tens of thousands of birds that have been dying from botulism outbreaks. And they're dying from botulism outbreaks because the mussels have so cleared up the water that seaweed, essentially, is called cladophora, maybe you have it here, grows at densities and in places where it never could before. Well, that stuff dies, its decomposition burns up oxygen, that opens the door to a botulism bacteria that, that the mussels aren't affected by. And then another invader comes in, uh, a fish that came through ballast water called the round goby, it's about the size of your thumb, and it is nature built to eat um, mussels. It has molars, little tiny fish with molars. Crunches the mussels, gets poisoned, botulism, floats to the surface, these birds eat it, and uh, Sleeping Bear Dunes, one of the you know, most gorgeous spots in North America, in some summers, you know, is just strewn with these dead birds. Mm -hmm. Or the toxic water in Toledo. That's because these mussels, they don't have a brain, but they're smart enough not to eat blue-green algae. And so they're selecting for it. So when you have an algal bloom now, in the 60s, it was a whole assemblage of species. Today, it's going to be this toxic stuff, and that's what knocked out the drinking water in Toledo in 2014. Mm -hmm. So there's real consequences to, mm -hmm. to this, and it's not just what's going on in the water. Some of, these, some of these blooms can go airborne, and they've been associated with all sorts of diseases that I'm not going to get into right now, but mm -hmm. um, respiratory distress and neurological stuff. Right. So where have you seen hope? In okay, yeah, yeah, because this is kind of a bummer. 
so far. <laughs> Imagine doing this for 10 years. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not, it, it really isn't, it isn't doom and gloom. Um, you know, the lakes are never going to be what they were, but neither are the forests. You know, we, humans need to eat, um, and, and we have a habit of liking to control things or trying to control things. And, um, and, and we've done that with the lakes. So we're not going to get back to, you know, lake trout and then seven species of ciscos and sturgeon. But a lot of those fish still do exist. And, and what's really interesting, what's going on right now, and this comes back to the front door and the back door, there's a new balance, balance taking hold, and it's because of those little gobies, largely. They're not all eating uh, botulism-infected mussels. That's, that's in a localized area. But they are all eating mussels. And what we're seeing on Lake Michigan and Huron, and it's happening on Erie as well, uh, native species are figuring out how to eat gobies. Native species couldn't really eat the mussels because all that protein is locked up in those shells. And, you know, the, the plankton population in Lake Michigan is like 10% of what it was before the mussels invaded in the 1980s. So they've taken a lot of the life and sucked it to the bottom. The gobies are cracking that open by cracking their shells. And now lake trout are learning how to eat gobies. Uh, walleye are eating gobies. Whitefish, which aren't even piscivores, they're not, they're not typically eating fish. They don't have teeth. They're eating gobies whole. And, and you're seeing a resurgence of, of these native species. And, you know, it's because that's, and I'll include Chautauqua. This is a tough, cold, harsh environment. And it, they, these lakes were so isolated that, you know, if you could survive here, you were a tough organism. And, and that's what we're seeing. Um, but who knows, this, this new balance. And, and salmon, by the way, they won't deign to go to the bottom and bang out their snouts in the rocks and in the sharp sh shells to get a meal out of, out of uh, the gobies. Um, but the native species are. This new balance is really encouraging. Commercial fisheries are coming back, uh, sport fishing on Lake Huron, though the salmon are now gone. The walleye fishing is going great guns, but it's fragile. It can all be unraveled with the next new invader that nobody's ever heard of. When zebra mussels were first discovered, I think it was in 1986, mm -hmm. there was some congressman or senator who was half asleep as one of his colleagues was arguing for um, some funding to, to better study these organisms, and he kind of comes to and says, what do, why, why is U.S. Congress worried about the muscles of zebras? <laughs> it's funny, but it makes you scared for what, what will be common in 20 years yeah. that we don't even know about yet. So, yeah, we got we to gotta do what we can to shut these doors. And again, not shutting the ships out, but making sure when they discharge this water that it isn't poisonous mm -hmm. in a biological sense. Mm -hmm. You're talking about Congress. Where do you see um, legislation or even, you know, a public policy agenda that is either promising or troubling as it relates to this? Well... You know, it's not going to happen with one magic signature. Um, what I do see happening is there's a greater awareness of, of the value of taking care of our water. You know, um, that's the starting point. You've got to get people to care. And once, you, once they care, then you've got to give people a path forward, you know, it's kind of, what do I do next? And, you know, I'm not here with a list of 10 things that we need to do. I mean, the first thing we need to do is to be at places like this where it's talked about the value of water. And just watching, you know, Chautauqua, that's just a gorgeous lake, and you just get the feeling that, you know, people want to do what's right by it. They just want to learn what to do. So I guess I'd get a little specific here, and I think a big issue, there's only so many levers we can pull, and I'd say a couple of these levers are shutting these doors to new invasions. Another one is getting a handle on phosphorus. You know, that's what's triggering these algal blooms, and as I mentioned, these aren't just a nuisance, they can actually be a public health issue. And so, and I'm not gonna get political about this, but I'm gonna say, you know, the price of a gallon of milk isn't just what you're paying at the grocery store. It's what you're paying when you go to 
um, you know, Western Lake Erie and the beach is closed, right? That costs something. That costs everybody something. But we don't collectively appreciate it. And I think this needs to be put on the table. Nobody, who, who in their right mind would want to see farms go out of business? We kind of need them. Um, but there's a way to, to farm in a manner that, we, I mean, there's a, there is a plan out there to, to dramatically reduce the phosphorus load into, say, Lake Erie. It just doesn't have the, 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 the regulatory teeth that it needs at this point. And it's going to take, you know, a Cuyahoga moment maybe. I don't know. I mean, when, when 500,000 people in Toledo and its environs cannot drink their water, and you couldn't boil this water. This was in 2014 because of toxic algae. You couldn't boil your way out of this fix because it only increased the toxin. So they had the National Guard coming in, bringing pallets of baby formula and, you know, uh, water for portable water purification plants. And in the first hours, this do not drink hour order went out on a Saturday at like 2 in the morning. And by 8, 9 in the morning in Ann Arbor, an hour away, bottled water was gone. You know, this is just no way to run a lake. <laughs> you know? Right. It's, and so, yeah, we need, to, we need to work on some very specific things uh, related to phosphorus. And not just for the five big lakes, but for, for a lake like Chautauqua and, and other upstate New York lakes. You said you've spent some time. Well, thank you. Yeah. When we were talking backstage, you said you've spent a little bit of time at Lake George. What, what was your impression of what's going on there? Yeah, they brought me in about a year ago to speak, and I think it was the fund for Lake George. And they have an ethic similar to what I encountered out west in terms of, you know, wanting to step because they're so high in their watershed. Um, but, but, but Chautauqua and Lake George should be talking <laughs> because you guys have similar issues and, and, you know, there's probably similar paths forward. It's just remarkable the research that they're doing to try to get a handle on things like road salt and phosphorus and invasive species. And I don't know how they did it or how they're doing it to bring their community. And this is, I mean, it's happening here too. It's evidenced by something like this. But it's important. The water isn't going to take care of itself. And it's easy to say that you value fresh water, but you have to get educated about it. And then you have to be committed to doing something to protect it because the business interests are interested in their business as they should be. But the public, you know, should be interested in the public's resource. That these lakes don't belong to the farms or to the shippers. They belong to everybody. Indeed. As we mentioned, we have a community that is deeply interested in reading and writing, and I want to talk a little bit about your advice to someone who may be contemplating their first book. But I do want to remind our audience that we'll be taking questions um, for Mr. Egan. If you can just write them on your notepads and hand them off to your ushers, um, we'll be happy to, to pose some of those questions to him. And if you want to submit them on Twitter, you know you can use the hashtag CHQ2019. But this is your first book, uh, and it's, it's, it's quite a piece of work. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what advice would you offer to the writers out there who may have been working on the past 10 year, for the past 10 years on a different topic? Just quit and do something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm being facetious, of course. <laughs> no, um, you know, when I say I worked on this book for 10 years, I, I, it wasn't, I wasn't consciously building toward a book. I was doing long-form daily journalism. And, you know, it was only when I went to New York that I realized maybe I should put this material between two covers. And I was naive in thinking that people, and we now know because of you know, uh, analytics, how much people are actually reading stories that are in the newspaper. But the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, when I started, had a circulation on Sundays of about 450,000. And I was naive enough to think that I just wrote a story for 450,000 people. Most of them were probably just shopping for tires, you know. <laughs> but it, 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 I realized that I needed to, to, to tell the story in one complete swoop. Now, doing that 
even though I had all this material, um, I thought would be easier than it was. I took another two years of just working. I did some new research for the book, but I would say 80% of my days were spent just working, you know, at a desk or at a table in silence and just, you know, spending a long time on something that would just end up not making it into the book. It, it, it wasn't wasted time because I find this stuff interesting, but there's a lot of starts and stops. And, you know, I, it's just so hard. I think it's hard for everybody. And I think I mentioned when we had talked a couple of weeks ago that um, I don't know anybody who, who it comes easy to. And, and if there probably are some people, but I don't want to meet them because it'll just <laughs> depress me. It's hard work. It just is. And there's no shortcuts and... Um, there's, you've just got to enjoy doing what you're doing during the time that you're writing for the sake of it because, you know, I could have written this exact same book and not had gone to New York and I'd, I'd you know, instead of sitting on a stage like this today, be hustling for an agent. So, you know, you just got to like the, it's hard, but anything really important is hard. And you just got to keep your nose down and, and do it. Don't talk about it. Just, just do it. Because I, I talk about it. I found myself talking about it. And then I realized nobody wants to hear this. Just, just zip it up and do it. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> but let me talk about this other book. <laughs> that, this one is a beast. You, you are doing it again. I am. I'm working on uh, another book. Um, while I was doing research for uh, the Great Lakes book, I, I did some, some deep dive into phosphorus issues. And as I was writing this Great Lakes book, I was thinking, man, phosphorus is so much more interesting. If only I could write about that and start from scratch, that would be great. Well, here I am. I've been doing it for like a year now. Here I am talking about my book. <laughs> but uh, it's going to be a lot of work. It's not going to take me 10 years. I have a deadline that's in July of 2020. I don't know if I'm going to make that. I hope my editor isn't going to come across this <laughs> broadcast anywhere. But uh, we may need to talk. Um, it's going to be a biography of phosphorus, basically where it came from, how it was discovered, and uh, how it's been used, and the paradox of it is that it's, it's in every cell. It's, it's required for every living organism, but it's also a, a horrible weapon, and it's a critical fertilizer that's being overused at this point, to the point that it's, you know, choking lakes. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a, a process, but I think it's important. And this is, like I said, one of these levers that we can pull. I think we can do some things to bring a phosphorus balance back to ultimately the water, which mm -hmm. is the most important thing. Well, I think you can tell why uh, your work has been compared in its import to the work of Rachel Carson. And so we'd like to just congratulate you on the impact that you're making. Have you been surprised by the response? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I was at a Milwaukee Brewers game with my dad some months before the book came out, and I just, I was too close to it, and I didn't like it. I, I thought that I was um, too shackled by um, all the material that I had been compiling, and I said, you know, but I'm willing to, you know, I'm, I, I'm willing to accept that it, it, may, it may be interesting to other people, but right now, it's not interesting to me. Um, I just want to get it done and go back to work. And, you know, it was kind of a slow burn. It came out in March of 2017, and it, it did all right. But the big thing that you want is a review in the New York Times, and it usually comes, as I understand it, you know, within a few weeks or a month, maybe two at the latest. <laughs> and it wasn't until uh, Memorial Day that, um, that it was reviewed in the New York Times, and it was reviewed with two other books about water. And then it started to, to build. And I think all credit to these editors and my uh, agent who helped craft the vision for the book to write it for a national audience and to, you know, illustrate for them why, why it matters. Because it's a little arcane, you know, thinking about the Great Lakes if you're in, say, Phoenix, unless you're in a drought, <laughs> which Phoenix often is, right. um, to, um, 
to try to make this relevant, but it is. I mean, this is a freshwater resource like nothing else on the planet. You know, it's 20% of the world's surface freshwater, and um, it belongs to, you know, the U.S. and Canada, but it's a global trove and treasure as well. And so it's, it's echoed out a little bit, and I think um, it's, it's credit to the uh, editors just making sure that, it's a, that I was doing everything I could to, to tell a story, not just a recitation of grim statistics. So. What didn't make it into the book that you mm. wish had? <laughs> Trick question. Um, no, it's not. Uh, I had a first chapter, actually, that uh, never made it into the book. Talk about toiling in a room, and then there it goes. It was, uh, it was the last commercial fisherman in Milwaukee, and um, he pulled out in 2011. He was like a fourth-generation commercial fisherman in the southern basin of Lake Michigan. Has pretty much it used, there used to be a lot of perch, whitefish, and chubs. I don't know if you guys chubs are like these little tiny whitefish. And uh, his last species, targeted species, was chubs, and they were so far gone by 2011 that he packed his family up and moved to Alaska. And uh, so I went out with him uh, on one of his last days, and he was with his dad, Alvin, who's 87 at the time. And, and these guys, Alvin didn't walk so well on, on hard land, but once you got him on the boat, it was just like he became a different creature altogether. It was just like watching a seal tumble into the water. He just was moving around the boat. And we were out in some... I thought we were going to sink. I really did. The, it, it, I wasn't, you know... I wasn't seasick, I was, I was just terrified, and it's it serious. Um, the water was just coming, coming over the bow, and uh, you couldn't see, and these guys are just drinking their coffee and just plowing into it, and, and the son looked over at me and just saw my panic, and he said, <laughs> he said to me, you know, you want to be out here when it's rocking and rolling like this, and I said, why, and he said, because otherwise, you're on the bottom. <laughs> These guys didn't blanch. I mean, I, this was a day at the office, and for me, it was the, the most extreme thing. Um, but, but I went back after that day to, uh, to this was really poignant, to the, uh, the farm where Alvin had been born, and it's now a bed and breakfast. This was uh, Wisconsin... Looks like Michigan with the thumb. We've got our own thumb peninsula. It's called the Door Peninsula. And uh, it was off the tip of this, or at the tip of this peninsula. Alvin had been born on the kitchen floor at this farm. It's since been bought by somebody from Chicago, and it's a bed and breakfast. They stopped by one time and presented themselves, uh, the, the, the fishing family, the Andersons. And the new owners were gracious enough to give them a back cottage every summer so they could spend family time together. So here they are at the family farm, or what's left of it, and Dan's telling his parents that he'd been threatening to do this for years because he had a, a license up in Alaska. He spent some of his summers up there, and he had young kids, I think, ranging in age from 9 to 14, three of them. And he was telling his mom that, I'm, I'm leaving at the end of the summer. And she starts crying, and he said, I'm not... I'm not leaving this lake. This lake left me. And, uh, and then it was just like, wow, this is, this is pretty heavy. And, and then he started talking about how he couldn't afford enough to even pay for fuel. And he said, it's a liquid desert out there, which was going to be the title of this book. But the New Yorkers didn't think that that was a appropriately... Uh, appropriate title. So that's, that's something that didn't make it into the book. And it was actually, it had an ending too of Al, Alvin is the dad. Dan comes home still. So this was 2011 when I was out with him. Dan still comes back and Alvin lives in South Milwaukee. And in his basement, he has this, I don't even know what it's called. It's some kind of a web where he, he patches the nets. So they go out every summer. They go up to Lake Superior now, and sometimes to the Door Peninsula, but they go out for a couple of weeks every summer to do it the old way. And I thought that was pretty neat. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you. Before we take a pause for questions, you know, we were talking about how many freshwater ecologists believe that 
individuals can make a difference. And you have a community here of individuals who uh, make differences in their community mm -hmm. every day, including uh, folks who get together uh, to sponsor a conference on the lake. We have many lake organizations where we have volunteers and staff who are working every day to preserve Chautauqua Lake. Mm -hmm. What advice do you give to the individual? What, what can they do? Unfortunately for this crowd, I don't know if I have good advice because it seems like you're already doing it and it's just spending time on the water and making sure your kids and grandkids have time and an appreciation for that water so they'll have a sense of stewardship because that's kind of what got broken in the 50s and 60s with all this industrial plundering. Of, of the Great Lakes specifically, but other lakes as well. People turned their backs on them. They started expecting them to be polluted. And, and once you lose expectations, um, you stop going to the lake, and if you don't go to the lake, you're not going to have a lake that you love when you're older. Thank you very much, Dan. Yeah. We know some of our guests will be moving on to other programs. Yeah. And we ask that you, as you always do, please um, do that as quietly as you can while we collect questions. One of the most fascinating aspects of the book that, um, you know, I, it was one of the many times that I just dope slapped myself uh, from all the series of catastrophes that occurred Mm -hmm. um, it happened before the St. Lawrence Seaway, and it was when the swamp was drained. Yeah, yeah, the Great Black Swamp yes. um, of Western Lake Erie. That, again, that was the editor in New York saying, I need more black swamp, because I made <laughs> reference to it. And he sent me off on a probably a two-month odyssey to do some more reporting about this. I mean, I guess it would be a quagmire. Um, but it was, it was Lake Erie's kidney, really. It purified that water coming down the Maumee River, so it was crystalline by the time it made its way into the lake. The Maumee does a different thing now. It carries a heck of a load of, uh, of fertilizer that came from all the rich, rich, rich farmland that only existed because uh, we drained the Great Black Swamp. Um, mm -hmm. It was a, yeah, it, it was... You. Think of the bayou in the north. <laughs> That's what it was like. Okay. How, here's a question from our audience. How much did dairy and meat consumption drive lake, con lake pollution? And can avoiding these foods by consumers affect the health of our lakes? I, d I don't know. I mean, I don't have a, a diet to prescribe that would help. But I, I do know that you know, the diet that we collectively have is not at the moment compatible in a lot of places with a functioning lake ecosystem. And talking about the Great Black Swamp, let's talk about Western Lake Erie for a second. You know, that's big corn country, and I'm not going to get into the politics, I'm just going to plant seeds as long as we're talking agriculture. But something like 40% of the corn we're raising now goes toward ethanol, and, and it's corn production that is poisoning Lake Erie, and it's just a situation that you got to kind of pull back and think there's a better way, because we are like poisoning our, our water to put fuel in our cars, and we need, well, we need water more than we need oil, but we need them both a lot, and we need milk, but we got so many of the solutions that we came up with throughout our young history, or our short history of this country, were great, but they're blunt, you know? They, they were solving one problem at a time, and then it would create a cascade of problems. Well, I don't want to point fingers at what we did in the past. I would only point fingers at ourselves if we don't try to learn from those mistakes and look toward more elegant solutions to some of these problems. There's still room to grow corn in Western Lake Erie, in a manner that we're not going to be, you know, ruining the beach or ruining the, ruining the western basin of the lake. Um, so it's great that you're thinking about what I eat and what I consume, and it does matter. And it's kind of, when you think globally, how we're increasingly going toward, we collectively humans, are going toward a more western-style diet, a more meat-based diet that's going to take 
more agriculture, more nutrients, and more waterfowling. So I, you know, I'm, I would never try to talk somebody out of eating what they're going to eat, but, you know, and I eat meat and drink, I have four kids, we drink a lot of milk, and um, it just, you got to think about it, so. Definitely. Yeah. Is Lake Michigan and the other Great Lakes, will they lose the war against the Asian carp? Aha. So I was talking about the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal, and um, that is the pathway for these giant supersized carp to make their way into the Great Lakes. Now, they, they may not be there yet. There's some debate. But were this canal not in existence, these waters would be naturally separated. Because this canal exists, you have a 160-foot wide, 25-foot deep invasive species superhighway. And these fish have, are an interesting story. They were, talk about elegant. This is, this is good intentions gone wrong. These fish were imported in the 1960s and 70s, and I'm going to say this very fast, but they were imported initially one species to eat uh, seaweed, so you didn't have to put so much herbicide into catfish ponds. Well, some three other species were accidentally imported, and they don't eat the, the seaweed, the bottom-rooted vegetation. They eat plankton. And, and the farmers that, the specific, the farmer that imported these turned them over to the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, and they could have killed these fish right then and there, but they were biologists and they wanted to tinker, and so they started um, reproducing them in their, lab or in their hatcheries, and then they um, got some federal funding in the late 70s to put them in sewage lagoons, and the idea was that you, in, in, in rural, poor communities, you could use these fish for sewage treatment by having them eat all the gunk because they're filter feeders, like little baleen whales. Although they're not little, they can get to be 100 pounds. Um, and then you would harvest those fish and sell them for food and fund more sewage treatment. <laughs> it's elegant, but uh, the FDA stepped in and said, no, you're not going to do that. And um, they let the fish go because they had such a hard time getting them to breed in captivity. They never thought in a million years that they'd reproduce on their own. And they've been <laughs> reproducing just fine to the point that they now dominate stretches of the Mississippi River, much like alewives did in Lake Michigan in the 1960s. And the only thing keeping them from getting into the Great Lakes, and once they're in the lakes, they could go everywhere. I mean, all, all the way, you know, to mm -hmm. Kingston, I guess. Um, uh, is an electric barrier that has a history of power outages. So, so they're trying to build a more robust barrier. And there's really, you know, some debate as to whether or not they'll thrive in the Great Lakes to the extent that they do in the Mississippi Basin because the Great Lakes have been rendered so relatively sterile by the mussels. It's like the mussels have beaten them to the punch. But the bays and the harbors and the tributaries that are still very productive would be ample habitat for these fish. And that's also where people tend to motorboat. And these fish jump. You can go on YouTube and see people getting, I mean, it's like these fish missiles launching. They don't like the whir of boat motors, so they jump out of the water. And I've been hit by them. It's not, fish are hard. <laughs> They're like a fist. <laughs> There's biologists. Uh, on the, the Missouri River, which is in the Mississippi River Basin, they don't go out without hockey helmets just to do their daily work. You don't want them in your lake. You right. Goodbye to, you know, all manner of motorized recreation. Right. It sounds like Lake Superior is relatively untouched by biological pollution. Is this correct? And if so, why is that the case? Um, relatively. They are certainly touched, but a couple of things. It's just a colder environment, which makes it a colder, much colder, makes it harder for species to take hold. And also, it doesn't have the calcium in its water to support the mussel shells. So they've really, they've really avoided the, the heavy hit from the mussels. And they also weren't, weren't um, harmed as badly by the lampreys. So yeah, they are relatively... Um, Relative, they're in better shape. Lake Superior is in better shape than the other lakes, but it's it's also warming faster than any of the other lakes, which has a whole host of consequences. I'm not going to get into now, but it has to do with water levels. Mm. And I, I will just say that we've always had the lakes within a certain bracket, in a matter of feet, 
six feet on Michigan and Huron between its high and its low. And we're already headed toward another high and we were only in a low in 2013. This used to take decades. It's now taking four or five years. And there's no reason these highs and lows need to stay within their historic parameters. They could, the lake could swing 10 feet. And it was in 1986 when we last had high water that uh, Lakeshore Drive in Chicago was underwater when a storm blew in. And you add another foot or two onto that and it's not just an inconvenience, so. Well, we have a ton of questions here, so I'm sure you're going to have a lot of visitors over at Alumni Hall later today. Mm -hmm. But let's just conclude with, there's several questions about the cooperation between the U.S. and Canada mm -hmm. on the work on the Great Lakes. Can you, can you talk about what's happening there? Yeah, you know, since I think it was 1912, the creation of the International Joint Commission, a binational body to help the U.S. and Canada jointly manage their lakes. And they are almost split down the middle. And once you get to the St. Lawrence River, you know, it literally is right down the middle. And there's such a spirit of cooperation that back in 2009 or so, the Coast Guard wanted to start, the U.S. Coast Guard wanted to start doing live fire exercises on Lake Michigan, shooting machine guns. And um, Canada said, we don't want weapons on our lakes. You know, we've, it's, this is a non-militarized border and we're gonna, we're gonna keep it that way. And it was, a, I mean, there were some lead issues because the, you know, these bullets are lead, but it was more, I think, a great story of the two countries working together. And they've done this with respect to water withdrawals, and they're working on it with invasive species. It, it is complicated because though this commission has a fair amount of authority, it really rests with the legislative and executive branches of both countries. And, and be, below that, there are all manner of county governments, state governments, um, village governments. It's a hodgepodge, but um, the U.S. and Canada really, you know, should be commended for managing it as uh, cooperatively and as they have. So Jordan just told me that I have 10 minutes. My clock went out down here, so I okay. thought we were closer. So we have some more time. Other than avoiding the use of phosphates in fertilizers, what can residents of Chautauqua do to keep from further harming our lake? I don't know the specifics, but um, I, I would say phosphate-based lawn fertilizer is a bad idea. You know, you, what you're fighting against is this, and it's, it's a powerful, it's a powerful um, image, and that is a nicely kept lawn swooping down to the lake, the lake at a level where it should be, which is about six inches below your dock, and it's the way it was on your favorite day when you were 12 or 13. But, but these are dynamic water bodies, and they're not always going to be what they were um, for long periods of time. I think buffers are obvious things to do, but what you're going to lose then is you're sweeping lawns. But, you know, what's more important in the end? You know, a, a functioning lake or a lawn that you may or may not play badminton on, you know, and I don't want to step on people's lawns, but, but they come at a cost. And especially the smaller the lake you're at, the more what you do near its shores has an impact on the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Okay. What's the value of commerce on the Erie Canal and how is that affecting decisions by the current EPA? I don't think that there is significant, and I don't, I don't know the answer to this specifically, but I don't think there's much uh, commerce on what's now known as the New York State Barge Canal. Um, it, it, it really, the, the, the heavy tonnage moves on the seaway, but it's worth noting, I talked about these ships bringing in um, invasive species. They only account for about 5% of the overall traffic on the Great Lakes, navigational traffic. It's just a sliver. They basically bring in the equivalent of a train load worth of goods a day and a train load out. And there's been a study that put the value of that in terms of transportation savings at $55 million annually. And that was done in 2007 when there was 12 million tons of cargo that moved on these ocean-going ships, these salties. In some recent years, it's been as few as 5 million. 
And that was a peer-reviewed study, and the logistics people who looked at it said, if anything, this $55 million is an over-exaggeration of the value of having this salty traffic coming into the lakes, as opposed to bringing it in by train, or Mississippi River barge, or even by truck. So, um, but, but people like the idea of having this international cargo on their lakes. It makes, you know, you feel connected to the rest of the world. It's not, I, I would argue, you know, we may not have gotten a fair, a fair deal out of it considering the billions of dollars in damage that these invasive species have done. Mm -hmm. You wrote in your book about the risk that other areas of the United States um, have about concerns of, fu of future water shortages and that they could see the Great Lakes as a bountiful source of supply. Can you talk about this concern and the impact it could have on the lakes? Yeah, about 2007, I think, the uh, two Canadian pro provinces, Quebec and Ontario, and the eight Great Lakes states got together and passed the Great Lakes Compact, which prohibits large-scale diversions of water outside the Great Lakes Basin. And this basin dividing line, the one that's only a couple of miles from here, is so important because water that's taken out of a lake but kept in the basin eventually makes its way back down into that lake, hopefully through appropriate treatment or just through natural runoff. But it's a bowl. You take, you take water outside the rim of that bowl and it never comes back. And so the concern in 2007 was that it was only a matter of time, and it may only be a matter of time, until thirsty areas of the country, or even world, come calling on this freshwater trove that is the Great Lakes. And I used to think that it was basically impossible to appreciably drain or reduce the level of a lake through some kind of uh, engineering that w we have the tools to do currently. And then I started doing some research about the amount of oil that comes into the Great Lakes Basin from Western Canada and North uh, Dakota. And it turns out it's the equivalent of the Milwaukee River in, in a late summer flow, but it's a river's worth of oil. And this is oil that comes out of the ground. It's not oil, it's bitumen. It's like, it's like a peanut butter and then it gets somewhat liquefied and pumped in pipes. And those pipes could run the other direction and they could probably move water a lot more easily than they can move this crude called Dilbit. So that is a concern. And you could also take more water out of the Chicago Sanitarian Ship Canal. That being said, nobody ever wants, you know, to see a community dry up and blow away. But I think each community region has a responsibility to live within its means, within its water budget. And there are certain places where we probably shouldn't be growing vegetables um, and, and that water, or golf courses, and that water should be going to people's faucets. So. We have someone in the audience who says their father, a Republican, was chairman of the Michigan Water Resources Commission. How do we keep the fight for clean water apolitical? I think it should be inherently apolitical. And I mean, it's just like fighting over, you know, the air we breathe. We all need it. Um, everything is getting so hyper-politicized and, and so partisan and you know, maybe, maybe we could use water as a tool or a vehicle to bring people together, you know, and, and uh, as, you know, citizens. This isn't a Republican-Democrat issue. There's going to be consequences, but they could be borne by everybody. There shouldn't be winners and losers. So... As a native of Waukesha, Wisconsin, not me, somebody who wrote this question, the former Saratoga of the West and a major discussion in your book, this audience member wonders, what has that city done to either remediate radon contamination or draw water from the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan watershed? Aha, that's a good question, and it relates directly to this compact that I was talking about where uh, the governments block large-scale diversions outside the basin. It was written with Waukesha in mind. Waukesha is a suburb of Milwaukee. I don't know how many people live in Waukesha City. It's less than a couple of hundred thousand. 
but they've got contaminated groundwater through no fault of their own, although they did have an abundance of spring water in the 1800s. Um, that's been drawn down to the point now they're deep into the aquifer and they're sucking up bad water. Unfortunately, they lie just beyond the Great Lakes Basin Dividing Line. So the compact is written in a manner that will get Waukesha water from Lake Michigan, but it's going to have to treat it and send the water back into Lake Michigan. They're basically having to engineer themselves into the Great Lakes Basin. And there's been a lot of uh, controversy over this because I'm a Milwaukee County resident, and many people in Milwaukee County fear that this Great Lakes water is going to be used to further um, grow industry in, in a, a suburb. And this is when it becomes uh, a political issue. And sometimes it's unavoidable, but I do think that Waukesha deserves clean water, and I think there's a way to do it that won't harm uh, the Great Lakes appreciably, and it should be done, and, and they are doing it. So that's a, and that's a great example of bipartisanship in that, that Great Lakes Compact, um, you know, was ratified by every Great Lakes legislature in Congress and, and signed by George W. Bush. Let's end on phosphorus. <laughs> Back to we work. can't wait to read the book about <laughs> phosphorus. What would you do? What do we do? What, are, what about the problem of embedded phosphorus? In soils? You know, that's a good question. Somebody might have been reading my mind a couple days ago. It's, it's really complicated. Uh, so we've been applying fertilizer, chemical fertilizer, to farmlands since the 1800s. I mean, and it started with bones, human bones included. Um, and it moved on to bird poop, guano, and, and now it is uh, rock, phosphate-bearing rock, most of which is sedimentary and was at one time at least partially made of living organisms. We've so saturated the fields with this, <clears throat> the croplands, that there's what they call legacy phosphorus deep in the soils that's going to be leaching out for decades, if not beyond. Fortunately, it's at this point in a, a, not a very soluble state, so it isn't, the, it isn't the, the trigger. As I understand it, and this book that I'm writing is kind of a design build, I'm learning as I go, but um, it's, it's the dissolved reactive phosphorus, the stuff that comes in pellets from factories that is really triggering the blooms. But this legacy stuff is going to have to be addressed at some time. But we're ingenious, you know, as a species. We've been able to, to find phosphorus in all, I mean, they, they raided the catacombs of Egypt and, and took like the, the skeletons of cats and shipped them to England and ground them up and put them on crops. If there's a, if there's a fair amount of phosphate, phosphorus in, in the soil, I, I think that we're going to at some point get a technology to, to recapture it and reuse it. I hope. Dan, thank you very much for spending time thanks, with us. Thanks day. for having me. Thanks to Dan Egan for joining us at Chautauqua and on CHQ&A, and to Emily Morris, Chautauqua Institution Vice President of Marketing and Communications and Chief Brand Officer for serving as onstage interlocutor. Special thanks also to the Chautauqua Amphitheater Sound Crew. Our producers for this episode were Corey Dubois and Robert Jackson. This particular program may appear in part or in full on the airwaves of our partner stations, WJTN and WRFA in Jamestown, New York. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded and edited in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.